Welcome to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, we've got a busy week and lots to discuss with uh, changes to the Labour NEC. What's the future of the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership now? We're also going to be talking about second referendums. Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson have made very interesting interventions in the past week or so. Could we really have a second vote on Britain's membership of the European Union? We'll be also touching on some other news stories and opinion polling data that we've found interesting over the past week. So as ever, I'm joined by Leo Barassi to go through some of the detail and find out more. Leo, welcome back to the show. Hello, Kieran. So we're going to carry on with our um, new format where we talk about what's in the news first, and then we go on to some um, polling data or interesting data that we've, we've we've found. So let's start off with what's in the news. What have you noticed in the past week? So the thing I want to talk about is that Theresa May gave a big speech on the environment. She launched the government's 25-year environment plan. Now, this is a subject that is quite close to my heart. It's a topic that I write about a lot and, and work on. But I think there's also some interesting political angles here that perhaps haven't been talked about that much and are backed up by some interesting polling. And perhaps the first thing that was really striking for me is that in this week's ICM Guardian poll, there were uh, uh, there was a bunch of questions on who is best for dealing with various issues and uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May. And there was quite a wide gap between them on on lots of things like the economy. But one of the issues that was actually quite close between them was the environment. So Corbyn was seen as best by 29%. Theresa May was seen as best by 25%. Now, I find that quite surprising. And it's something that I've heard said by conservative uh, strategists in the past, but Actually, it's it's perhaps counterintuitively the case that the environment's quite a contested area between the parties, that sort of contrary to what one might think, perhaps, it's not an issue that is comfortably dominated by Labour. I think in the past it was the issue that the Lib Dems dominated, and now that's gone away. It's actually seen as an area that the two parties are fighting on between them. So could this be the the Gove factor? And I mean, Michael Gove has been uh, taking the environment... Um by storm, hasn't he, in his new role? I mean, could he be uh, helping the Conservatives go green? Well, right. So it's yes and no on that, isn't it? That it's. I think that is certainly the case that he is doing that, and uh, and he is uh, very clearly spearheading uh, a lot of initiatives on the environment that they're doing. Let's not pretend or that uh, the stuff that he's doing has swayed public opinion and got people thinking that the Tories are particularly good on that. Let's let's not believe that a public opinion on something like this would shift that quickly. But what I think is is striking and quite clear from this is that the Tories have obviously seen the environment as a topic that worries a lot of the people that they had as part of their 2010 to 2015 Cameron coalition that they lost in the last election. So particularly younger graduates, uh, Remain voters, um, there, was, there was a very good bright blue YouGov poll in September that asked younger voters which issues they want politicians to be talking about more. And quite strikingly, climate change came uh, top among 18 to 28-year-olds uh, 28 amongst actually quite a, quite a uh, host of sort of mainstream issues like defence and healthcare and housing and so on. Uh, so it's quite striking that... Uh, an issue that's usually treated as quite marginal seems to be uh, uh, something that the kind of voters that the Tories have been losing, uh, including 
so eight top among 18 to 28s and among all under 40s it was second so i think it's clear that the the tories have looked at this as a topic that they can make ground on or perhaps they can protect themselves uh, against losses on uh, if they are seen to be strengthening what they're doing it's um it's fascinating really that the numbers are so close between the conservatives and labor or between may and corbyn because i, I would never if you'd asked me to guess that i would never have thought um, that that was the case. I certainly think the plastic story is one of those that will cut through. Again, I think you're right. I'm not. I'm not sure it would have any political implications, but I think it's something that people talk about, isn't it? It's like the water cooler the thing that you know get get getting rid of plastic. And you see, I was watching a documentary the other night of uh, I can't remember who it was. That someone was swimming in the Arctic to raise um, awareness of uh, of the pollution in, uh, in in the sea there, and there was all this plastic in the in the water and stuff like that. So I think I think that the, these sorts of tangible everyday um, issues can can really cut through, can't they? I think that some of the you know saving the world aspects of climate change are harder to convince people on. Right. It's not the kind of policy that you do it and people are suddenly going to vote for you, apart from perhaps a very small number at the fringes. But it's the kind of thing that if you're seen to be bad on it, then it just kind of leaves a bad smell that affects everything else. Mm. And it's obviously the case that the Tories felt and... Uh, quite understandably so, given some of the campaigns that were very effective, uh, that Momentum were running, they felt that at the last election they really suffered from being seen to be bad on things like ivory and fox hunting. And it's obviously a, a weak flank that they're trying to protect. And I think it makes complete sense to do it. Now, it might be the case that, at some, that eventually they'll get to a point where it's not just shoring up wounds, but it's actually... Uh, protect, uh, 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 projecting their their influence into a bunch of voters that they didn't have last time. Now, I think that's going to take quite a bit more work, but it, it seems plausible that the government uh, actually seriously look at that as yeah. something they want to do, given the prominence they gave to the speech last week. I think I would, I would kind of echo what you, I think you were alluding to earlier, which is that on its own, it's not going to do things. I mean, Theresa May was supposed to be the unconventional conservative that was going to reach you know Labour voters. And for a long time, it looked like that might be the case. Traditional working class Labour voters might go blue, as it were. Whether the environment does does that for them, I'm, I'm not sure. But it, it's interesting to see that the um, you know, they're at least the Tories are at least trying to sort of re-engage in in that debate. Yeah, but I think we should be clear about which group of voters we're talking about. I don't think that this is a policy that's aimed at, as you put it, traditional working class blue collar Labour voters. Uh, I think this is a policy that's aimed at metropolitan. Uh, ex-Tory voters that are quite Remainy, uh, the kind of people who um, are losing the Tory seats in Richmond um, and putting seats in Hastings at risk. Uh, essentially, this this isn't about making gains from Labour in Midlands in the North. This is about shoring up the Tory seats in uh, in towns and cities in the South, uh, at least on the basis of the polling. This is much more of a Remainy issue than a lever issue. So I think we should we should be clear about which which flank they're trying to fight on here. No, absolutely. Um, moving on to, to my, my news topic of the week, I, I was I was I was struck by um, two interventions from well one intervention each from Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson around this question of a second referendum on Britain leaving the EU. This is something that people will know that we've um, polled about quite a bit on this podcast with our series of opinion. And I'd stopped talking about it to some extent on the pod because it kind of felt like we were saying the same thing over and over again and there wasn't really much chance of a second referendum happening and therefore, you know, let's leave it for a time for the time being until at least uh, public opinion decisively shifts. 
But in the last week, we've had big interventions from Nigel Farage, where he tweeted, maybe, just maybe, we should have a second referendum on EU membership. It would kill off the issue for a generation once and for all. Um, and he claimed that the Remain side were making all the running and did the media rounds once again um, to talk up this idea of another vote, which I thought was, if, if anybody, if it, probably the most surprising person to come out and say that would be Nigel Farage. A couple of days later, Boris Johnson was, there was an article in The Sun about Boris Johnson, who had apparently confided with friends that he was concerned that Theresa May would be worn down by Remainers in the cabinet and Whitehall mandarins and accept a really bad Brexit deal that meant essentially we became um, just another Norway, to use the, the quote in the paper. Um, and then in that situation, that Brexit would have been a total waste of time. And he said, I'd rather stay in than uh, leave like that. So you had these two stories um, back to back. I don't believe in coincidences in, in these sorts of things. I know too many people that uh, work in the media and politics to, to believe that. So I was just quite struck by um, these interventions. I thought they were very surprising. And, and mainly, as I said, because it doesn't really look like there's any momentum behind another, another vote. So what was behind them coming out and saying this? It was uh, uh, very surprising to me. So there's an interesting thing that you touched on there. Are, are you suggesting that in some way the two of them might have been coordinated, that this this might have been what some kind of deliberate push by the levers to try and get momentum up for, for this argument? I mean, what, what do you think is going on with that? Well, the first thing I would say is I'm not remotely convinced that they actually want a second vote. I mean, I, I find that impossible. So are we saying that, let's, let's take Boris Johnson first and foremost, are we saying that if Theresa May came to the country tomorrow and said, you know what, I just think there should be a second referendum on whether we should leave after all, that Boris Johnson's going to say, okay, you know, he's going to stay in the cabinet and he's, he's not going to resign, he's, he's, that, that's absolutely fine, but we don't know what the result would be. Uh, no, not at all. Um, whether it was coordinated between the two men, I, I, I may be a bit sceptical about that, but I certainly think that Boris Johnson looked at what Nigel Farage said and thought he might as well come up with something. And it strikes me that they're probably, they're probably trying to do is to put pressure on the government to pursue the type of Brexit that they want, the hardest of hard Brexits, you know, and really um, maybe even go out with no deal rather than accept some sort of watered-down, softer version of it. I mean, Nigel Farage, it's easy to be sort of cynical and about what, what he's trying to do, get back on the airwaves, maybe have a, yet another comeback. But I think that the... The really significant intervention there is Boris Johnson, who we talked last on last week's podcast about how his favourability ratings have taken a battering. But he's still one of the front runners to be prime minister when Theresa May goes, even now. And maybe he was just reminding the Conservatives where he was. Right. I mean, the next election, next Tory leadership election is presumably going to be fought by one Leaver and one Remainer. You you would think, I mean, that, that seems, I think, to be fairly accepted wisdom, or at least people who are broadly identified as as winning the parliamentary support of those two flanks. Well, if the, now, Remainer, if the Remainers can get somebody on the ballot, is probably the caveat I would have there. Well, I guess that's, that's the point, that I suppose the implication is that Remainers, or at least very soft levers within the, the Tory party, will be coordinating enough to make sure that one of the two options is somebody who can produce an outcome that's fairly favourable to that to their cause. Now, if what you're saying is that what Johnson is doing is to try and uh, position himself very strongly as uh, as quite a hard Brexit uh, in order to uh, be well positioned for that campaign, well, what he's obviously doing is trying to shore up that side of things, which then 
leaves open the the space and the question of who would would be the person he's fighting against. Well, the other thing you've got to yeah, I think that's true. The other thing you've got to remember, going back to the the, the I guess the substance of the issue, which is should there be another vote? Um, you know, Labour is not calling for one. If Labour was to call for one, you imagine that Boris Johnson or whoever the next Tory leader is would use that quite ruthlessly as a dividing line between the parties. Now they might not they might not win on that dividing line, depending on where the public mood is, but they would say, Ah, look, Labour's being anti democratic, wants to reverse your decision. <laughs> Labour's being anti democratic, it wants to have a vote. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Um all those arguments the Leave side uh use and that would be used as a way of at least attempting to co- keep the sort of Leaves Tory coalition together that got them above forty percent of the vote at the general election. So I, I just again I go back to the fundamental issue, which I just find it impossible to imagine a scenario where a Theresa May calls one and b Boris Johnson supports it. And frankly, Boris Johnson isn't going to be running for Tory leader on the platform of saying I would like another referendum, is he? So. I mean, you have to look beyond what they've said here to, to what's going on, but it is it is, um, it is an odd one. I, I didn't see that one coming. Um, let's move on to to, to polling. Um, given that it's a polling podcast, we're gonna we're gonna flip things around a bit. I'm gonna move on to my polling subject because it is related to what we've just been talking about. So shortly after, I think it was either the Far- I think it was the Farage intervention and before the Boris one, but I might have my um, chronology uh, skew with. There was a poll by Comres which uh, put the cat amongst the pigeons and it was in the mirror and it had um, 55% backing Remain and 45% backing Leave in a hypothetical uh, future referendum. Now obviously this combined with the idea that there you know, certain people calling for another vote really sort of gave the Remainers certainly online um, some wind in their sails. Um, also in the poll, there was uh, 51% said there shouldn't be a referendum, another, another referendum. 43% said there should, 6% said don't know. And those numbers largely mirror what we've seen in our series um, with Opinion 2. So a, a very a majority against another vote. I guess, uh, as an aside, what that means is that about 16%, 1 in 7, say that they would vote remain in another vote, but they don't want one. So um, make of that what you will. Right. But, but that, that point particularly, I mean, lots of other things to talk about, but I, th- I think that's not at all surprising, right? If, if anything, I could imagine that that's relatively low. You know, lots of people who think uh, it's, a, it's a real mess and they wish it hadn't happened, but just want it all to go away and certainly don't mm. want to go through another referendum. Well, I think what we've talked about before is that um, there's about one in five-ish Remainers don't want another vote to look at it the other way around. And, and typically they tend to be conservative Remainers. And I think that's the, that's the thing that gets lost in this debate quite often when we talk about second votes. Um, yeah. it, it, it's not just a Labour Remainy kind of issue. There's a lot of conservatives you've got to convince to shift public opinion in that direction. Yeah. Um, elsewhere on the poll, uh, th- only 30% said that There- uh, they were confident that Theresa May could get a good deal. Um, for the UK uh, in the Brexit negotiations, just six percent said they were very confident, and that mirrors similar figures um, with YouGov that show about the same amount, um, sort of thinking that the the negotiations are going um, are going well. But I wanted to focus on some of the detail of this poll just because um, it did cause such a stir, and I, and part of the reason we established this podcast in the first place was to sort of shine a light on some of the small print of some of these numbers that are put in the public domain because it really, really is very, very important. Now, I should say as a disclaimer before we go into this, this isn't slagging comrades off or, or saying that this is a you know a woeful poll that shouldn't be looked at or anything like that. 
But um, there are some issues with with the data, at least based on the tables that are published, that we should bear in mind um, before we assume that 55% would vote Remain in another vote. So if we look at the data tables, comrades have interviewed 1,049 respondents in one day on the 11th of January, and data is weighted to be demographically representative of um, British adults by region, gender, and age. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it means is there's no obvious sign in the data tables that these numbers were weighted by how people voted in the past referendum. Um, and indeed, it says gender, age, and region were the only weights applied. And when you look at the, the sample um, based on the cross breaks provided, about 70% of it is ABC1. Now, the British population does skew ABC1, but not to that extent. So there's a real risk, and we can't know this for sure because we don't have that how did you vote last time question in there. There's a real risk that there are too many Remain voters from 2016 in the sample, and therefore that's skewing things in a sort of pro-Remain way. And if the sample is skewing ABC1, then those people, the sort of um, middle class, upper class people, for to paraphrase, were more likely to be Remain as well. So there's a certain instinctive logic to this. Now, we should, again, we should hold our horses before dismissing it entirely because, hey, who knows, maybe a future referendum would have an electorate that was disproportionately um, Remainer versus um, Lever when we compare it to 2016. Maybe some of the Levers that turned up in 2016 wouldn't turn up next time. Who knows? But there are some big health warnings on this data, and we just need to make sure we take them into account when looking at um, when looking at what it says. Right. So it's all of that is stuff that makes complete sense, and I think it's right that that ABC One stuff is striking, and the lack of political and referendum waiting does feel like something to be cautious about. But. I think we should also just sense check it and run it up against some other polls to look at the numbers. Um, so, for example, this this sort of uh, big question of should there be a second referendum that got 43-51, so 43 should, 51 shouldn't. Now, if this poll heavily skewed towards Remain voters, as I think is the implication, particularly if it's quite ABC1, then you would think that that would, that would have boosted the there should be a second referendum number. So 43, 51, uh, 43 should, 51 shouldn't. Now, there's, a, there's been an Ashcroft poll out um, this, uh, this week, in fact, today, uh, that has asked a bunch of questions about should there be a, a second referendum. And it asked it in four different ways, um, asked the wording, uh, essentially built up the wording from an extremely simple, do you want a second referendum on Brexit? A quarter of people got that. Um, and there were three other wordings, uh, each shown to a quarter of the sample. And the last one, once negotiations are complete and the full details of Brexit are known, would you support or oppose holding a referendum on whether to go ahead with Brexit or not? Quite a mouthful. But that 4351 that Comres got is a bit higher in terms of support, but it's not totally out there. So that gave an eight-point lead for support. Uh, sorry, for for don't support. Now the Comrades, sorry, the Ashcroft wording that was most favourable to uh, support actually got an eight-point lead for support, and another got a two-point lead for oppose, um, and the others got bigger leads for oppose. But it seems to me that those Comrades numbers that are uh, possibly skewed by a sample that 
other pollsters might not have got doesn't feel like it's produced a result that's completely out there so this this eight point gap for shouldn't be another referendum i don't think we should be looking at that and mentally thinking well the right answer is much bigger than that because and it was just that this was skewed yeah because, i think i think yeah. I, I was less i was less concerned by that number i appreciate they're in the same poll and therefore you know <clears throat> if, if you're concerned by one you should be concerned by the other i think for me, there's the voting intent. The difference between that number and the the remain leave number is that one has a sort of voting intention aspect to it. Um, difference being, the should there be another referendum or not is just what public opinion says. Whether or not they'd show up to it, we don't know. Whereas, mm. would you vote remain or leave? It, there's there's something implicit there about what the, that electorate is going to be. And if you go back to those comrades numbers, 94% before, uh, so 55, 45 excluded don't knows. Only 6% said don't know or wouldn't vote in that poll. So this was a, this was a sample that was very, very politically engaged and it was very, very likely to sort of show up in that future hypothetical referendum. And I suppose the risk is that you're missing out again, which I think some pollsters did in 2016, um, not just comrades. You're missing out those people that showed up just to vote Brexit. So I think that it, I, I would maybe separate public opinion on the should there be another vote, which is arguably more important from the, the, the prediction that was splashed across Twitter saying, oh, well, Remain would definitely win by 10 points if there was one. Well, it's funny because in a weird way, I sort of um, agree with you and disagree with you there. So uh, I think you're bang on. And, and that's a really good point that uh, I, I, I guess I haven't really paid attention to enough that... If, if we're seriously looking at this and saying uh, who has a lead now in a hypothetical second referendum, remain or leave, then we should be applying some kind of turnout filter to that, which frankly we're not. And and I think that's that's completely fair to, to draw attention to that. Now, what and you, you could argue just to briefly interject there, you could argue that, that that turnout filter would mean nothing because it's not even on it's not even a vote that's on the table, is it? So how would you right? Yeah, how would you even so, word that question? So we can't, but but I guess the fact that we can't apply a kind of turnout filter to that is is interesting in itself. But the sort of the, the funny thing is, you said a couple of times there that. Uh, the more important question is the should there be a second referendum rather than what the re would the result of it be actually i think exactly the opposite i think the question on should there be a second referendum is kind of irrelevant at the moment because a lot of people are looking at that and thinking well there isn't going to be one that i really can't be bothered with the faff just like 10 years ago no one that seriously thought there was about to be a referendum on leaving the eu but once uh, there becomes a sort of uh, a commentary at received wisdom that uh, there is strong opposition to Brexit. I say once, of course, what I mean is if, then, uh, and let's say we start getting uh, a bunch of polls that show that uh, support for the Remain is more like 60% and that happens consistently, then I would be surprised if it wasn't the case that it became very quickly established that there should be a second referendum and that the people's will is frustrated if there isn't one. And in that situation, then I really would expect that support for a second referendum would move very quickly. So actually, I think the opposite. I think the important, interesting question here is the how would you vote at the second referendum, which, as you say, is a bit problematic when we're assuming that uh, everyone who says that they have an opinion is a voter in this. Well, this is good because we disagree on this. and It's, it's, a, it's better to have a podcast when uh, you're not just agreeing with each other. Um, but the poll we just showed with comrades showed that um, although people would vote 55-45 remain next time, um, that a, a chunk of one, one in seven people that would vote remain didn't want another vote. 
So the point is that you need you need the remain the new remainers, the people that want to vote remain next time, to actually want to have a vote. Before right, you, but they're exactly you... the people that I'm talking about. The um, I mean, you can add the don't knows there, and you've got about a quarter quarter of people who'd vote remain. They're they're precisely the people who I imagine if they started seeing regular polls that showed that sixty percent wanted to remain, and then there started to be a pretty widespread thing on uh, in, on uh, radio, TV, whatever, uh, of people saying that this is unfair, that those people aren't getting a say and the public have changed their minds then and therefore have not having a second referendum is undemocratic, then I would expect that those numbers would shift, I'm sure. And to be honest, I I, expect, I thought it was more than one in seven. That, that seems reasonably low to me. Uh, I, I would really think that a lot of those people essentially don't want one because they just cannot be bothered with the faff of of why have they called another one you know it's it'll there'll be a viral video soon enough of a remainer saying oh another one yeah well they've gone and done that for was it brenda i brenda. mean there's a lot of attention that's paid to num that you a number a series of numbers that you gov produce where um currently the latest poll that was on 7th and 8th of january that i was looking at um in hindsight do you think britain was right or wrong to vote to leave the european union um, right, 42. Wrong, 46. Uh, don't know, 12. And Chris Henrazzi's done some interesting analysis that appears to suggest that the shift towards um, wrong or the most significant shift towards wrong has happened since the general election. So almost as though, um, given time, that that that, that opinion might grow, as in the gap between right and wrong might grow. But again, unless, unless those people that think it's wrong go on to then say, and I want to change it, which there isn't really a lot of evidence for, I'm not sure how things fundamentally shift. And I'll add another dynamic to this, which is fundamentally Labour need to be calling for a second referendum and calling to reverse Brexit explicitly for this for any of this to happen. And where, where's the evidence that Jeremy Corbyn's going to, to, to do that? I mean, the, the, the great irony of this, if you look at some of Comrades and YouGov's numbers, is that with Comrades, 64% of Labour voters um, want another vote. With YouGov, it's about 53%. I mean, we, we, we know that there are different ways of asking this question and so on and so forth. But there's quite convincing majorities of Labour voters that want a second referendum vote. We know Labour voters are quite pro-Remain, but I just don't see Jeremy Corbyn shifting his view on, in, in time on this. So if the day after the referendum result, I was devising the ideal strategy for Labour to reverse the referendum result, what I would have said was initially go in and say the people have spoken, we're going to accept it. Set, uh, set a bunch of tests that will be difficult to meet. And you say it's really important that Brexit is now carried out in a way that benefits the British people. Keep on supporting it as long as those tests are met. Eventually get to the point where you very reluctantly say, we've supported this, we've given it the best chance it can possibly have, but, but reluctantly we now think that it's done so badly that the people uh, need to have another say and look at where we are. Um, and uh, though we tried to make this work, we now reluctantly think that it's not. Uh, that if, if I were setting a strategy, that is exactly what I would suggest Labour should do if they wanted to reverse Brexit. Now, oh. coincidentally, it doesn't look very different from what Labour have done. Now, I think what you're about to interrupt and say is, do you think that Jeremy Corbyn wants to stop Brexit? And no, I don't. But uh, it's still, I'm not sure <clears throat> Labour is in that bad a position to make a change should it want to. Yes, but I, I think you're right in how I was going to interrupt there. That may very well be what the Labour leadership has allowed its the people within the Labour Party that want to do that to think. 
I'm not remotely I'm not remotely convinced. And and look, I say that I say that as someone that you know is is, is open minded on this myself. And you know what? I think one of the most um, effective political decisions Jeremy Corbyn made was to not go into the last general election saying he wanted another referendum. Um, and to not want to reverse Brexit. I think if he'd done that, it would have been, even now, even with the terrible campaign the Tories had, would have been very bad for them, uh, for Labour. But, yeah. you know, there's just no evidence that he's going to shift and shift in time. And I think that's the other thing we haven't really talked about is the time, the train's leaving the station, no matter what Donald Tusk or whoever tweets. Right, yeah. I think uh, I'm much more confident on the side where I could see public opinion uh, turning to support a second referendum if it starts to see that uh, comfortable majority aren't happy with the result. I struggle much more to see how it can work in practice and, and in the timings. And um, the Ashcroft question that, that I read out in the long one that um, that did uh, did well, uh, actually, actually the one that did best was slightly shorter, but um, essentially the point is once Brexit negotiations are complete, would you support or hold, oppose holding a referendum? Well, How's that supposed to work? Um, the idea that somehow within the Article 50 timetable, the government will come back with a deal, uh, put it to the people, hold a referendum, and there's a possibility of reversing it all within that timescale, that seems pretty unlikely to me. I mean, I think what would have to happen is to, to, to play devil's advocate with myself almost. I think what would have to happen is there has to be some kind of election where Labour is a minority government. And the only way it can do anything is with support from the SNP and the Liberal Democrats in whatever form those two parties are in at that time. I mean, it's, re it's reasonable to suggest the SNP, how however they do next time, are going to have a decent chunk of MPs, right? Um, the Lib Dems, who knows? But still, in, in, in a hung parliament, it all, it all counts, doesn't it? So I suppose, I suppose in that scenario, you can argue that um, they, those parties would try and force Labour's hand but again, that requires the government falling quite soon, which you know we don't see. But um, moving on, anyway, on, on your topic, you were going to talk a bit about Labour, weren't we? So that was a nice seamless segue that we were, that we just did. Yeah, right. And I wanted to draw just one question, actually, from the Ashcroft poll, and then sort of reflect on what that means and and where we are. And that was simply the question on best prime minister. And um, don't don't need to talk about many, uh, about many of the numbers. Essentially, Theresa May was thirty five. Jeremy Corbyn was twenty nine, and not sure. Uh, just narrowly won with thirty six percent. And you know, I thought, particularly in the context of having just had the uh, the NEC election, where um, clearly uh, Cor uh, Corbyn and his his supporters did extremely well. Um, it's very interesting that. Um, he in the public eye is uh, not just behind Theresa May, but that gap has widened. So Ashcroft compares it with uh, his poll from July last year, where the gap was only one point. So it's not exactly widened, especially quickly, but it has widened from one point. Those to numbers, six by the way, are very, very similar with YouGov. The one the poll I was referencing earlier: thirty-seven right. to Theresa yeah. May, thirty-one to Corbyn, thirty-one. Not sure. Yeah, so we're in an interesting position where it's. Obviously, the case that he is absolutely untouchable within the party. Uh, the, the vote for the NEC has shown that, and uh, rightly or wrongly, the way the election result has been interpreted is as a triumph for Labour, and that has meant that there is no prospect whatsoever of him being ousted um, against his will any anytime soon. And in fact, it seems to me that he's so powerful that uh, assuming that it, it, it that his his leadership doesn't go on and on and on then it really feels like uh his side has the power to fix the next leadership election um even though 
they don't have uh, anything like a majority of MPs, it should certainly be possible for them to get their candidates on the ballot and then essentially say to the members, this is this is the Corbyn successor candidate. Uh, this is who we want. So he's sort of immensely powerful, despite um, being behind a prime minister who's widely regarded as as very ineffective. Um, and there's a sort of there's a paradox that he's kind of um, arguably he's he's a, he's in some ways a drag on the Labour ticket. He's other polls have him being less popular than Labour uh, in the. Uh, in the post-election polls in in June, he uh, it was clear that relatively few Labour voters voted Labour because of him. A lot of Tory voters voted Tory because of Theresa May in terms of who they wanted to be Prime Minister. But yet he's sort of he's this arguably not especially popular drag on the ticket. But he has managed to introduce a set of policies that are extremely popular. And I think it's it's not not unreasonable and sort of not controversial to say that he's maintained an ambiguity that perhaps few other people would be able to do. That has been essential to Labour's success. So clearly, uh, I mean, so that most strikingly, the way he's regarded as very much a left winger, whilst having gone into the election with uh, tax and spend policies that were were really not especially left wing, and in fact, uh, in many ways, were. Uh, were as regressive as as the Tories in terms of their distribution, um, and then this year already they've uh, uh, they've sacked from their front bench uh, Chris Williamson, the MP who suggested putting up a council putting up council taxes significantly. Um, so, so there's a sort of paradox that he he's uh, he seems in the polling to be not very popular, but and so you might almost think, well, would Labour be doing better without him? But it feels like his. His sort of slightly ambiguous stance on a lot of things has allowed the party to get into a position where it can do things that are wildly popular whilst contradictory and appealing to different sets of voters. Yeah, I mean, th- we're running out of time, but three three quick quick points on that. The first, um, Chris Williamson, lol, that was uh, that was quite. I, I, I enjoyed that one immensely, and I particularly enjoyed uh, left wing commentators on Twitter trying to do almost Blairite intellectual gymnastics with how this was a good, this was a good thing. You know, this was our, I'm going back to the back benches to spend more time with politics. I mean, honestly, I mean, I've never heard anything like it, but that, that, that's point one. Point two, which I almost discussed on the, um, on, on my, on my news topic, but I didn't think it was worthy of it uh, too much, was the front page of the Indie recently, which I think it was either the day, yesterday or the day before, where shadow cabinet ministers apparently had been, now we don't know who they are, granted, so... Maybe it's uh, someone on the lower rung, rung of the ladder. But shadow cabinet ministers were briefing that Jeremy Corbyn was too old to lead Labour into the next election, which I thought was strange. If that had been the front page of The Sun or The Telegraph or something like that, um, I would have thought, OK, I can see where that's come from. But the front page of The Independent from uh, Labour's own side, that was really curious to me. Um, but again, you know, a shadow minister could be Owen Smith. Right. So <laughs> so who, who knows who yeah. knows who that was? But it did strike me that Jeremy Corbyn's age will become a factor, rightly or wrongly, um, in the ne- in the coming years. And the question will be posed whether he's too old. I'm not sure how the, that will be answered, by, either by the Labour Party or by the public. But I think that's going to be something that that we come to. Final point on your on, on the um, I guess the the Corbyn side can rig not rig um, can basically make the next. Uh, decide who the next leader is shall we say and have a pretty good chance of getting them installed i would argue that depends very strongly on who that person is and if they agree on one 
It's not hard to imagine some kind of split or difference of opinion between the old and new guard there as to who that should be. And I would also say that if it isn't somebody like Emily Thornbury, um, who I have tipped, so I, yeah, I will I will confess that full disclosure in the Times Red Box recently, um, then it's not hard to see how, I don't know, for example, John McDonnell, I don't think it would be him, but let's say John McDonnell runs and the momentum are behind him and you know he's the Corbyn successor and so on and so forth. But then his opponent is Emily Thornbury. Yeah, okay, I can, I'll give you that I can see how that could be positioned as the PLP versus Corbyn again. But, you know, I think there is a groundswell of opinion. I know we say each time that the next Labour leader should be a woman. And Emily Thornbury's been quite close to the project, as it were. So I, I wouldn't go... I, I know exactly what you're saying. And I think that it's 90% right that, of course, Corbyn is, is all-powerful and his acolytes should be able to... Um, secure a succession, but it does depend on who the candidates are. Right. Okay. So a few few things I'll respond to quickly there. So on the split, you're absolutely right. There is there is no single Cor- Corbyn project and uh, and si- single faction. Sure, but I suppose the point is, given the division in the PLP, uh, assuming that it's not radically changed by the time there's the next uh, leadership election, which is of course possible with threat of deselections, but it seems to me that they can only put one candidate up to the members. So the fight would presumably happen before it goes to the members. And then you would expect that, um, you know, the Clive Lewis's would unite behind the, the Emily Thornberry's or whatever. Um, so, so yeah, fair enough. Um, I think the, the media, your, your point about the independent is, it reminded me of just, I just was sort of struck by it. It's just so, uh, I've got to say, out of touch. A cartoon in the Evening Standard this week on the day of the NEC election, which has Corbyn. Uh, I guess it's him driving a van off a cliff, celebrating his NEC results. And I just feel like um, if that's reflecting Osborne's thinking, then it just sort of uh, uh, just feels like such a complete misreading of the situation that the idea that um, this NEC election is taking Labour off an electoral cliff just just feels absolutely, totally um, it's it's astonishing that there can still be a widespread sort of politically respectable view that Labour that Labour Party. Well, to interject briefly, just uh, George Osborne. I mean, you know, someone needs to call him out soon. To be honest, given that a lot of the problems the country faces, including Brexit, are related to the action he took in government. But anyway, carry on. Right. Yeah. Um, and then last point on the age, and I think I think I I, I think I disagree with you there because I think in a way that's kind of priced into the stuff that I was talking about last time that. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's old and he will be particularly old by the time that he's running next time and he will be proposing that he would be uh, prime minister until he feels really quite very old. But isn't isn't that what people's perception of him anyway? You read the focus group transcripts and what people say is he's just sort of, you know, he's he's a, he's a nice old guy who's going around doing his thing and pottering around in his garden and uh, that's the criticism of him. And yet he's still where he is. I'm not, not really sure that... Um, the, the perception of him gets any lower. He's already perceived as not really the guy that people want to be prime minister, and yet people vote Labour. He, he's get, he's getting older, though, isn't he? I mean, I, I, well, I think, well, I think yeah, there's a critical mass of this, isn't there? I mean, it's like yeah, sure, but but right now he looks. He's uh, an old more, man with old ideas. That, right, but right now he looks more energetic. They would say. And up for it than he did two years ago. Mm. Uh, you know, the election has obviously revitalised him. I don't think. That when you see him around now, you think that this is this is someone on their last legs. I think, and particularly if he's no. going into an election, thinking that he could be, he genuinely could be prime minister. I don't think he's going to be looking past it. Um, and and anyway, as I say, I think most voters 
have priced that in already. They're not convinced he's the best person to be prime minister. But actually, what matters is more what he's done to Labour policies, which uh, is, at least for now, uh, seeming to work quite well. Yeah, and I guess I guess with the age thing, the final point is that you know, when, he, when he stands next to Theresa May, there isn't much difference there. Maybe in the future, if he has to stand next to a much younger Conservative leader, things will change. Maybe they won't. But that's all we've got time for um, for this week's Political Betting Polling Matters podcast. Big thanks to Leo Brassi for joining me as ever. Um, do comment, like, share, and you know, get the podcast out there through various social media apps that you use. That will really help us. And let us know what you think of the new format and if there are other topics uh, that you'd like us to discuss in future weeks. We've already had uh, three or four, actually, that have come through. So we're going to hope to try and um, do some of those in the coming weeks. Um, But for now, thanks for listening and have a great week.